Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Cody Fern is in the house. This actor in the past year has captivated audiences, not only on the screen, but also on the red carpet. From his breakout role in Ryan Murphy's The Assassination of Johnny Versace, which The New York Times declared exceptional, to his performance in Murphy's American Horror Story, and then the last season of House of Cards. He's quickly established himself as a young talent to watch. It's all here. His humble beginnings in his tiny Australian farming village, his daring, gender-fluid red carpet style, and how he's confronted the ugly side of fame. So, Cody Fern, it's so great to see you. I'm glad that even though you've lived in the States now for two years, is it? Four. Four. Wow, time flies. Four years. You still haven't quite lost your accent. I try not to. It's curious because when I was younger, I had uh, speech therapy to lose my accent in Australia. It was something that I consciously wanted to do because I was from the country in Australia. You were in the country, country, country in Australia, right? Yeah. So I come from a small town. It's called Southern Cross. It was at that time about eight hours outside of Perth, driving towards Perth. So if Perth is the second most isolated city in the world, and then you go to Southern Cross, you're driving into the middle of the country. And the population at that time was just under 300 people. Within the actual town, it's about 100 people. It was one grocery store. It was a post office. Um, We had the local pool, which my mum managed. There was uh, two police officers, one of whom was my dad uh, when I was younger, and not much else. It's so isolating. Mm -hmm. It's I can't imagine what it's like to grow up in that kind of environment. But also, I think in some way, it must have really prepared you for Hollywood in a way. In some ways, yeah. It's curious, when I was in it, growing up in Southern Cross, there was a part of it that was torturous. Um, I was so uh, different and weird, is what I was told, and outside of the norm, and I couldn't make friends, and nobody wanted to play with me, and it was a tough time. It was a really, really hard time, uh, transitionally, and my parents weren't together. My dad had moved to the city, to Perth City, and I was living with my older brother and my mother, and we kind of went backwards and forwards between my dad and my mum. So I was, I never fit in in the city, and I never fit in in the country. So it was, it was very tough. And then I went to boarding school from Southern Cross to a town called Meriden. So at the time, it wasn't easy. But now, reflecting back, I'm so grateful for it. And I'm so grateful for all of the lessons that I learned, including those that were traumatic or tough, um, even about 
not having friends at that period of time and having to really focus on myself and on my imagination and on what I wanted and how to get out and how to be bigger than life or how to have a life that was not contained within the small town. Is part of that transition, is that why you wanted to change your accent or... or... I wanted to change everything. Yeah. I wanted to change everything about who I was. I had always dreamed that I was adopted or born into the wrong family. And it's not because I didn't love my family at all. It's because I had these aspirations and I would see things on the television or at the movies and I always felt that's where I need to be, that's who I am. And it was just not possible where I was from, which is funny to say it now because of course it is. But at the time, no one had done it. No one had gone to university in my family I was one of the first people in my town to go on to university. So there were a lot of things that just were not possible. And when uh, things haven't been done before, people tend to say that they can't be done and you should do something else and you should focus on something else. And I was told time and time again that the things that I wanted to do, I couldn't do, like even going to university, that I wasn't intelligent enough to go to university or that I wasn't in the right school to go to university or that there was no way you could ever be an actor. And more so that that kind of thinking is beaten out of you when you're in a country town, because that is a, being an actor is not the world to be in when you're surviving in a very machismo culture, which is one of the byproducts of a small country town quite often. But you did do very well at university. That's what I find interesting, too, about your journey here uh, to this podcast with me at this very moment is you you were very successful in the end, and you had a career. I did, yeah. I went on um, to work for a financial institution, a very well-known one. I had taken out um, an internship of sorts that was kind of going to propel me onto the stage of, you know, eventually becoming a CEO of a financial corporation. And that's, again, that was something that was drummed into you is, you know, you're going to become a business person. That's how you're going to succeed. Um, If you go into business, then you'll have a way out and you'll take holidays in Bali and you'll have a house and you'll have a family and you'll get to the end of your days and you'll be very happy and you'll retire. And it was always kind of a slow and trickling death for me, even as I was doing it, which is funny, again, to reflect on because At the period of time that I was doing it, I knew that it was farcical in some way, that I was very successful at it, but that it was almost like a play and I could never compute how it was actually unraveling like it was and that people were trusting me with their finances because I was just such a lost kid at that point in time. I didn't know what I was doing in life. I didn't know who I was. But you knew what you were doing in business. I think it's whether it's the right brain or the left brain. I think that's interesting. Like personally, you're floundering, right? You're figuring out who you are. Mm-hmm. But obviously, on professionally, you could have kind of carried on that way and had checked all those boxes. I could have, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just I got to a certain point in time where I realized that I hated my life, that I hated what I was doing that I hated the music that I was listening to. I hated the people that I was hanging out with. I hated the situation that I was in. And I went home and I, it was after a day of, a really tough day of work. And I remember going home and writing a list out of all of the things that I liked about my life and all of the things that I hated about my life. 
And there was one thing on the thing that I liked about my life and there was a list of things that I hated about my life. And at that point in time, it was when I really went, well, there's only one person to blame here. There's, you can only point the finger at one person and that's myself. I was slowly going insane and I was like, okay, well, that's one way to the grave and it's slow and it's tortured. But this other way, pursuing your dreams you might have a quick end, but at least it'll be fun. So <laughs> what are you going to do now? Uh, and then you actually, just chronologically, you did you did very well. You got some parts and you were in War Horse. You did the tour, I right? I did War Horse, yeah. 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 I joined an experimental theatre group and I'd done a few things. I was rejected from the major drama schools in Australia four years in a row. And the fourth year I was told, this really isn't for you. You should just, <laughs> you know, you should... Like, don't come back. And so I moved to Sydney. Uh, I thought, well, I'm going to go to Sydney. I'd never been. Uh, I'm going to get off that plane and I'm going to make it as an actor. And a year later I was cast in Warhorse, and I kind of lied my way there. I'd, you know, I'd done experimental theatre and I'd done Romeo and Juliet very poorly um, looking back. Uh, <laughs> I had so much energy mm-hmm. and I had, I would say, so much raw talent and no technique whatsoever. I didn't know what to do with it. I was 23 at this period of time and I was kind of just on fire internally and there was no control. There was no technique. There was no craft. Uh, but I was determined to figure it out. And I got cast in Warhorse and that role, the role of Albert. And I should say here for all our listeners, Warhorse was on Broadway, obviously. He mm-hmm. traveled a huge play, and Steven Spielberg then went to make it into a movie. Yeah. yeah. It was a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And they upped it in Australia, which was really funny, from there were 1,000 audience members in the UK, and they upped it to 2,000 per night in Australia. And, and that was really my school. That was where I uh, was really learning how to be an actor eight shows a week. And that gave me the confidence to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Incredible. And then we get you here in America. Mm-hmm. And I love, I was looking at these quotes where you had said how you told some journalists that you're going to do TV only if it's either House of Cards or with Ryan Murphy. That's right. That's <laughs> and right. I love the youthful arrogance of that because it's just fun to say. And obviously both are great, you know, I can understand why someone would want to to do either of those. But then you end up doing both in very quick succession. With very different results. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a funny thing, life. It's a funny thing because I knew that. I knew that that's what I, if I was going to work in TV, that's who I wanted to be working with. And at that point in time, it seems like an arrogance, but what it really was, I had done this other thing in life, you know, business, and I'd pursued this other career and I knew what I didn't want to do anymore. And what I didn't want to do were things that were going to not, were going to detract from my soul or take away. And I didn't want to get caught for seven years in a periodical where I couldn't change. And especially because I think my rhythm of change is so rapid my identity shifts so much and uh, it's a part of what I love exploring in a character because I'm like, is this me? Is this Mm -hmm. a part of who I am? How do I integrate this thing? Is this Cody Fern? Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I really didn't want to go down that path, but I think by articulating those things, it's like the mechanism for the universe unlocked a little bit. And it was like, okay, well, you want to do these two things, kid, here you go. Uh, You you better do the work. Mm -hmm. And both of those experiences, so it was Versace first, which of course uh, has been one of the most phenomenal experiences of my life, but you're thrown into a world on Versace that is so high pressure with a character that is incredibly difficult to play in situations that are so tragic. And I loved that. That's where I learned. I love it. You know, I, I love a challenge and, um, I can do this. I think I can really do this. And then I went to house of cards Uh, And I'd been watching House of Cards longer than I'd been acting. And it was such a dream come true for me. What what did you love about that show that made you watch it? You know, first of all, that first season was like nothing else that we'd ever seen before. It was like, who is Netflix? And everyone's like, Netflix? You know, you get DVDs from Netflix in the mail. So nobody knew what it was yet. And then House of Cards landed and it was like an atomic bomb. And you had these phenomenal actors really chewing the scenery and talking about things that were happening in America at that point in time. It was very prescient. And there was a darkness to it that was so attractive. I think that was a part of the genius of House of Cards as well, is that you fell in love with these bad people and as the seasons developed, you started to feel a little bit more sick to the stomach and, Mm -hmm. and, oh, I've... I'm a part of this. I'm Mm -hmm. complicit. And so I I loved that exploration. Mm -hmm. And you played a great character on that, that I love that kind of Duncan Shepard, right? Is that? it's Duncan Shepard, Duncan Shepard, and he's just this mischievous capitalist monster in a way. I mean, you're, and the camera loves you. I will say that like no other. I mean, you're, you're, always devastatingly handsome sitting across from me. <laughs> but on screen, it you pull focus. You just, once you step in front of that camera, there's there's nowhere else to look. And so it was a good, oh, fun, thanks. delicious role of this high-tech world and how he sets all this stuff in, in motion and, and whatnot. I remember walking to set shaking on the first day like a leaf because I was about to be in a scene with Robin Wright and I have loved Robin Wright ever since Hurley Burley. It's, it was, I laughed. I mean, I sat opposite Robin, we sat down and everybody was ready. And in my head, I was just like, you know, don't screw it up, don't screw it up, don't screw it up. And I just laughed out loud. And Robin was like, what are you laughing about? And I was like, I'm sitting opposite Claire Underwood. This is so stupid. Like, okay, roll the camera. Like, I don't know how this is going to go. We're like, you know. But it was a good moment for me even to just be like, you can still be a fan and and get the job done. And I was very discombobulated as Mm -hmm. I was filming that, um, but I was very excited to be there and very excited to Mm -hmm. be doing it. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about Ryan Murphy because you mentioned um, that in Johnny Versace and your character is very complicated, very, very challenging role actually because you in part set the tone uh, of the show, because we have to believe that someone of sound mind and body would allow himself to be manipulated by a sociopath such as Cunanan. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I was very familiar with this story because it was at Vanity Fair at the time that Maureen Orth was writing about Andrew Kananen and and all the stuff of which then became this television series. And that victim, David, is so complex and you had to do it all almost without dialogue <laughs> because you really are the audience. We're feeling and reacting kind of in, in real time. So I'd like to for you just to talk a little about kind of working with him from that first first time to then doing another full series and then potentially something else. Well, Ryan is one of the most interesting people you'll ever meet, and he's a real visionary. So he's got a million things going on in his mind at once. And for that episode, uh, episode four and five, I was actually directed by uh, another genius, Dan Minahan. Obviously, there was a lot of communication going backwards and forth with Ryan because he is ultimately the creator and the showrunner. But Ryan on Versace for me was more of an elusive figure. Um, He was really spearheading the production, but I had come in on episode four and I was working with Dan and Mm -hmm. the crew and the cast and I had gotten the script, I'd gotten the role, I'd received the script and then a week and a half I was going to be filming. But, and it's not to diminish what I did, but the writing is so phenomenal. Tom Rob Smith is such an exceptional writer mm-hmm. that a lot of it was right there. It was more about getting out of my own way, about not trying to put things on top of it or force a moment. And I think what really helped with that was that when we first see David, we're seeing him essentially at the most traumatic period of his life. So when his entire self-conception falls away, his best friend has just been murdered in his apartment, he's never experienced anything like this, and now he's fearing for his life with the awareness that he's probably going to be killed and he's harboring what he sees as a dark secret in being gay. Obviously his friends and whatnot know at that time, but he's dealing with gay shame. So it was for me about really working with Darren and working with Dan and going as deep as I possibly could. And it was uh, very meaningful at that period of time for me, Um, especially because I was just about to, well, not give it up, but I was was leaving acting because I was a bit too heartbroken by what was not happening for me at that Mm -hmm. period of time. So it, it all happened by osmosis and at the, at the perfect time, that audition I was I had flown back from London because I was working on a script that I was going to direct and I flew back because it was a Ryan Murphy role and I was told at the time you're probably too young for this and you probably don't have the right look and I said I just want to be in the room for that and I was going into that audition and I was emptying the tank and it's so always the way that when you say okay I'm letting you go now I'm going to go off and do this other thing that by some grace it comes back around and says, actually, you're not going anywhere. You're going to be playing David Madsen and then things are going to be a little bit different from mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. from then, now on, kid. Right, and Ryan kind of took you under his wing, to say the least. He told you that you needed to work with the greats. And, That's right. And he's worked with the same kind of group of actors over repeated projects, which is, it's like a theater company. Yeah. So you got to work with, obviously... Um, Sarah Paulson, mm-hmm. Kathy Bates, Jessica Lang, Angela Bassett, the list goes on. Francis Conroy, I mean, who's so 
incredible. You know, it's interesting because what I love about what Ryan did there was I struggled for a long time. I mean, I've touched on this briefly that, you know, identity is a really, it can be, I think for most artists, it can be a very um, complicated relationship. Uh, It's difficult to figure out who you are as an actor. Um, Some people can lock it down and then they can go. And and for others, it's a bit more difficult. And it's always been profoundly difficult for me. I used to have a, a large struggle with it. And it's, it was something in this industry where somebody would uh, come up with a label and I would try and play that label and I would try and go with that thing and it was like, you know, do you want me to be the leading man? Do you want me to be the boy next door? Do you, like, who do you want me to be? I was always being thrown off my centre and never, you know, nobody, it felt like nobody understood. And through all of that, it was like this pinprick of light where Ryan said, actually, I see it and I understand it. And you can play this and you can play this and they're completely different. And you can play this and you can play this. And I think as an actor, that's what you know, that's what you desire, that's what you you yearn for. And he gives that to uh, his actors and actresses. And I love that because I've always felt like when somebody puts a label on you, it's a difficult thing because sometimes you can take that and ingest it and become that thing because it's easier And as an actor, that's death, right? It's like, that's done. Um, The moment that you're playing the same thing over and over and over again, where's the joy going to be? But I think that's one of his real uh, gifts to actors that he says, actually, I see that you have an array of characters inside of you and I'm going to give you the canvas for that. Because going from David Madsen to the devil, essentially, Mm -hmm. is so uh, polar opposite and to find out two days before I was playing Michael Langdon on Horror Story, like, okay, you can do this. Off you go. <laughs> um, it's a gift. It's mm-hmm. a real gift. He changes people's lives. He's a, he's a person who is walking the walk continually in a world where there's a lot of talk. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's a nice thing. All right, I want to talk about some things off camera, mm-hmm. which... Uh, I love GQ, your GQ style, fantastic portraits. Again, Thank great you. photographs. <laughs> but I have to say the writer, individualistic is what he calls you. Mm-hmm. And gender fuck flamboyance, which I thought was, I love that I just said that word anyway. I don't yeah. think I've ever said that. And Fern is exactly what Hollywood needs. So <laughs> I believe he's referring to, let's say, either your Instagram, your red carpet, your looks, your bending, your pushing, your fashion is its own characters, its own point of view, is its own story, mm-hmm. uh, as well as Cody. So can you talk to me a little bit about that and how that has changed for you over the last couple of years? I think I've only just started discovering that identity can be a really playful thing, that gender can be a really playful thing, that who you are doesn't need to be fixed down. And it was before the Golden Globes, all of these wonderful things were happening in my life, and I felt internally like I was not uh, being fully authentic to who I was yet that there was something inside that was uh, a little uncomfortable with the role that I was 
playing to myself. So at the Golden Globes, I decided that I would do something that was for me, that I felt represented something of who I was at that point in time. And obviously that made huge waves. And it was really a statement to myself about what I was able to do and who I was. And and it kind of grew from there. And then all of a sudden I started to realize, I want to play with all of the crayons in the coloring box. And if I can color in with all of these, I can make a more full picture of who I am. And so I'm exploring that through fashion as well. I think that I'm exploring my identity through fashion and I'm having fun with it. And also, because it's not entirely self-conscious, I had a moment six months ago where I was very overwhelmed and I was going through my closet and all of a sudden I had like a miniature panic attack and I was like, none of this is me. You know, where am I in here? Mm. Like, I, I don't, I can't wear any of this. I can't. And it was a very strange moment. And I remember thinking, what is going on? And I thought, oh, your identity is shifting again. So what do you want to wear? Just go and buy it. Just go and put it on. Just try it. And in the GQ shoot, that was at a particular juncture in time. I will reveal something quite personal. Mm. I was struggling at that period of time with becoming a kind of sensation and having more attention fixed upon me. And it was uncomfortable at first, and I didn't know quite how to be in the world because it felt quite fraudulent. It was like, well, who am I? And I was living in a very small apartment, and my phone number was the same as always, and I was kind of naive in that way. And then I was criminally extorted. Somebody hacked into my computer and into my phone and into my bank and they essentially came with the threat of we're going to destroy your life if you don't provide pictures and videos of uh, you in compromising situations. And of course, that was something that I was never going to do. But it was something that was so shocking to me that this was happening. I felt so violated and so frightened They had my address, they had my bank details, they had what was conceivably my identity. Mm -hmm. And it was right before the GQ shoot, and I thought, well, fuck you. I haven't owned everything about myself yet. That's what I'm going to take from this. You're not going to win. I am going to take everything that you were trying to turn against me and I'm going to embody it uh, for myself. So the GQ shoot came along, and I thought, you're going to go after my sex? Mm -hmm. Well, I better find a way to own that real quick. And that was the GQ shoot for me, where I was really feeling that, and I leaned into that, and it was mine. And so I didn't need to fear that this person could destroy my life or could do anything to my life because it's mine, actually. You don't own anything about it just because you have, what, my bank details Mm -hmm. and my family's bank details. I'll show you, buddy. And it was a real learning moment for me. And now I'm constantly trying to do that in my life. 
own everything about myself. And that's really what I feel that I'm doing now with my fashion. It's not as self-conscious as what looks good or what looks, it's more, what do I feel good in? What do I want to say? Yeah, I think that's so much more prevalent today than it ever was before, especially because of social media and people oh, see you, you know, they see you 3D. They want to, you know, it's not just the roles. And so it is like a 360 prism. But, but I will say selfishly, you're impossibly chic and I love it. <laughs> so <laughs> regardless you. of reason, you know, I just love to look at it. And I thought the shoe was spectacular. And I think the red carpet stuff, it's like, it's different much in the same way that I remember, I can't remember the award show when you and McGregor wore black eyeliner and no one had ever seen a guy in, in, eyeliner and mascara. I mean, it was probably almost 20 years ago. And I remember he right. came up on a show and I was like, wow, you and McGregor looks hot in his eyeliner. And well, it became a talking point. But I do think those things are shifting. It's impressive how quickly. I think so, because I think in, in large ways, Hollywood is quite often a reflection of what's happening culturally. I love that everyone can take a different interpretation from what I'm doing with fashion in the same way that you can from what you're doing as an artist, as an actor in a particular role. And what I'm always trying to do now is to tell a story. And that story I'm starting to realize is a part of the narrative of my life. I remember for one particular shoot, I was saying to somebody, oh my, you know, I was so, I went to the, they had all these men's clothes, quote unquote, laid out. And I was so bored. And I went to the other rack and I said, I want to wear this fur jacket and I want to wear this mm -hmm. and I want to wear this. Somebody said, but that's the women's clothes. And I remember saying, actually, these are clothes and I'm going to put them on and then they're going to be men's clothes. You know? <laughs> I love it. Well, it is, you have such a great, a great sense of style. It's, you just have it. Whether, regardless of what you're wearing, you know how to put it together and you can know I, how to Can I say, it. though, and it's an important yeah. fact, I never used to. I didn't have it. And I didn't have it because I was so afraid of embracing all of the parts of myself. And it's really been a discovery in the past two years that integrate all of the parts of yourself and not just the good ones. Mm -hmm. look, at the, look at the dark ones. Look at the things that you don't necessarily want to look at. And integrate and become whole. And the more whole you become, the easier it becomes actually to find a representation for who you are through style, even that you can transition from being, you know, wearing jeans and a t-shirt and not feeling like you're good enough to wear Maison Margiela to the Golden Globes. And then making that leap that says, actually, I'm enough full stop and I can wear what I want to wear. And now I'm wearing these clothes and the clothes are not wearing me. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And I still would like to see you in jeans and a t-shirt. I'm sure. Oh, I you... love jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> I love, I mean, I, that's the thing. It's not, it's not one thing. It's like, so you hang out and what it, like yeah. do whatever you want to do. Yeah. I love it. All right. I'm going to ask you some of the, I'm asking everybody these kind of essential questions that are just fun to give an idea. So what are you eating these days? What are you into? I'm super healthy. Um, at the moment, I'm becoming very aware of my body uh, in a way that I never have before. So I'm very conscious about what I put into it. And I now I'm a vegan 
and I'm not a vegan that's screaming from the rooftops, but it's good for my body. So I'm eating lots of greens, lots of grains, uh, lots of raw proteins, um, lots of food, but always, always very good food. Okay. Um, and what are you reading? I devour books. I probably go through four in a month. So I'm reading, at the moment, I'm incredibly interested in alternate points of view because of what's happening in society with politics right now. So I'm reading The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris, which I would say people think is a very far left way of thinking. It's not. And then I'm reading Maps of Meaning by Jordan B. Peterson, who is kind of a controversial figure who people tend to put on the right, and he isn't. But they have these opposing dialogues and opposing points of view about the structure of society and the, the fabric of how it functions, both economically and politically and culturally. And I'm reading Orlando mm. <laughs> um, by Virginia Woolf, mm-hmm. and I'm loving that. And I just finished You Are the Universe by Deepak Chopra. Mm, Nice. Uh, What are you listening to? I'm really obsessed with Lizzo and a young artist from Australia. His name is Rule, R-U-E-L. I think he is astronomical. And my favorite band is Rufus Du Sol, who are another Australian band, and their most recent album, Solace, uh, which I have plain played every single day since I heard it months oh, ago. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, all right. So what's the last thing you binged on Netflix? Dark. The second season is coming out soon, and I'm so excited about it. I'm so, so, so excited about it. I believe it's German. Really, the best way to describe it would be the title. It's very dark. Uh, And I love international cinema, so it's great. Well, I can't wait to catch up with you again in a year. Uh, Let's do it. Yeah, a year or whatever the next. After you do your next Ryan Murphy, I'll come and get you back in the chair and and we'll have another conversation. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, but it's great to see you. And you. Thanks so much for joining me. House of Cards is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Present Company is produced by Netflix and Gimlet Creative. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company. Present Company.